1: Hi there and welcome to New Books in South Asian Studies. I'm your host Ian Cook and today we're talking about Rule by esthetics world-class city-making in Delhi. The book is written by Asher Gertner and is published by Oxford University Press in 2015. Asher is an assistant professor at the Department of Geography at Rutgers University. The book explores why the way things look are fundamental for Delhi's transformation into a world-class city. Based on deep ethnographic engagement in one of the city's slums that is destined to be demolished, the book weaves together the experiences of these slum dwellers with an analysis of middle-class resident welfare associations, legal rulings, influential reports, and idle chatter to argue that mapping and surveying are no longer the primary means for administrating urban space. Rather, it is a set of vague and powerful aesthetic norms which are derived from notions of what it is to be world-class. Theoretically stimulating and rich in narrative drive, the book opens up new ways for thinking about urban governance in India and beyond. I had the pleasure of speaking with Asha just a few moments before. Okay, so it gives me great pleasure to welcome Asha to New Books in South Asian Studies. Uh, Let's dive straight into talking about the book. Your book is about Delhi's efforts to become a world-class city. So I think a good framing question that allows you to Tell us your argument, is is to ask you what role does aesthetics play in this process?
0: Yeah, thank you, Ian, for the invitation to be on the program. It's really my pleasure to speak with you today. As is clear from the book's title, aesthetics obviously plays a central role in Delhi's kind of self-styled effort to transform itself into a world-class city. In the first decades of the 21st century, which is a period first decade of the 21st century, a period in the book that I call Millennial Delhi, visual codes concerning kind of what belonged and what didn't belong in the city became the primary basis on which urban space was governed and administered, especially the space of slums. In the aftermath of of independence, as Delhi was growing rapidly, city land had been administered according to modernist logics of what we typically would call just like kind of rational planning. This meant that land and the populations using it were to be carefully monitored and enumerated through the calculative technologies of map census and survey. Right. So this is a system of kind of calculative governmentality that's often been summarized as a system of rule by records, right, through which spaces are known and populations are directed according to the state's kind of careful wielding of statistics. Through this, any and all land use decisions were to be backed by a rigorous techno science. This rule by records was kind of built into the bureaucratic core of the Delhi Development Authority, which was maybe the, perhaps the, the nation's premier urban development body. Um, it's huge. It has a staff of around 26,000 people. And it was thought that this body would administer slums by going out and basically measuring their area and their territory and counting their population. In the 1990s, though, the system experienced a series of kind of functional crises that I document um, in the introduction to the book. Uh, In short, the ground reality had become sufficiently unruly so as to prevent accurate state oversight of this variety. Um, In particular, the slum population had continued to rise despite sustained government statements declaring the need to actually reduce the slum population. With the rise of Delhi's kind of millennial aspiration to become a so-called world-class city, a goal that was really repeated multiple times and all over the place by top politicians and written into the core of the city's master plan, this problem of slum growth led the city's government to declare the existing approaches to calculative planning inadequate, right? Right. So, in a lot of the Western literature, and this is kind of how I frame um, some of the literature in the intro to the book, a lot of the, the, especially the Western literature on planning and governmentality, the absence of this kind of calculative oversight is presumed to lead to various forms of failure, right? So Foucault famously declared that government cannot do without this type of scientific knowledge. Yet in Delhi, what I found through my fieldwork there. Um, was that this kind of calculative shortage didn't really impede government at all, right? It rather generated a shift in what I call the epistemological basis of rule, away from that older system of rule by records and towards what I call rule by aesthetics. So in this moment, in this this shift, the legality of urban space was determined not on the basis of a land uses, Conformance with planning law or a statistical evaluation of a population or a zoning map. Instead, for example, slums were declared unplanned and thus illegal because, quite simply, they looked unplanned. At the same time, so called world class urban developments, so things like posh shopping malls and elite luxury housing, even when it violated land use codes and planning law, was declared planned and therefore legal. Um, what this did is it facilitated a massive slum demolition drive that dwarfed even the famous 1970s or infamous 1970s emergency era slum clearances. Um, as many as a million people were displaced between 2000 and 2010 from Delhi slums, largely through orders from the Delhi High Court and the Supreme Court of India that basically said slums should be removed because they look and smell bad and don't fit into the aesthetic consensus of what a world-class city should look like. So as you can imagine, this had profound implications for how slum residents were envisioned in the city, the types of political claims that they could make. Um, In the book, I explore both kind of how this system of of aesthetic governmentality was put in place. And then also how popular politics among the slum dwellers threatened by eviction responded to it. Um, I also try to make kind of broader claim about the role of aesthetic politics in urban government more generally sort of thinking with Delhi and, but beyond the Indian context to sort of note things like the global increase in beautification drives in other aspiring world-class cities. So things like Beijing's demolition of slums before the Olympic games, To the increasing use of aesthetic covenants to regulate street appearance in European cities, to um, the use of visual criteria for things like identifying areas of urban blight slated for demolition in the US. Um, So that's the kind of arc of the argument about aesthetics um, in the book, as I sort of frame it, at least in
1: in the early parts. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Thanks for that, that that gives us a really uh, good basis for the rest of the conversation. But before turning to the book in depth, I was wondering, could you first please tell us a little bit about yourself, what's your academic background and how did you get interested in Delhi's transformation?
0: Yeah, I'd be happy to do so. Uh, I first visited Delhi um, as a 20-year-old undergraduate on a semester-long study abroad program. Um, I was a student of environmental studies at the time with a growing interest in the urban environment really. During a, a month-long independent study that we kind of had to organize for ourselves on that semester program, um, I spent a month. I spent that month in a large slum in South Delhi, uh, during which I quickly discovered that the environmental issues that had troubled me as a young student kind of mattered little in the life world of of those around me. Far more pressing than things like climate change, for example, was the concern, the immediate concern for shelter. Um, so after studying Hindi, uh, as a master's student at Berkeley, um, in the following years, I returned to Delhi and it was right around the time in 2004 that the city's largest, uh, slum called Pushta, which is located along or was located along the banks of the Yamuna river was raised. Um, this was a hugely important event in Delhi politics. Um, it rendered about 150,000 people homeless And sort of sent shockwaves through uh, different kinds of communities in the city, as you can imagine. Um, As a student of geography, questions of urban land tenure and squatting had been really central to my reading and studies at the time. Um, This is also around the time when I met a committed group of slum-based activists and supporting organizers fighting to prevent the demolition drive that had begun to really subsume the city. Uh, I was ins- highly inspired by their organizing and their activism, their ability to understand the law and um, to put forth kind of counter proposals for the city 's development trajectory. This led me to spend three years living in North India, trying to make sense of how the capital city of you know the world 's largest democracy could spatially banish so many of its citizens. Um, so the book is based on kind of two years of fieldwork in Delhi as a doctoral student between 2006 and 2008. And then it's also um, based on follow-up visits in 2010, 2011, and 2012 that went up into the, the final drafting of the manuscript,
1: um, which just came out in 2015. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Great. So let's, uh, let's turn to the book's chapters now. Uh, I'm going to start with a really open question that allows you to talk about Chapter one, I think. And the question is, how does a, a city like Delhi go about making itself world class? Yeah, that's,
0: that's a great question. Um, it's one that I get often. And it's also a very hard one to answer because nobody really knows what a world class city is. Right. Um, and that's kind of the point. Uh, it's informed. The idea of a world class city really is informed by a kind of loose sense of what other imagined or supposed world class cities already look like. So you can imagine kind of taking a little bit of Paris here, add a little bit of Singapore there, and mix it together, and voila, you have the ideal of a world-class city. Um, That's the way it works at a kind of popular, discursive level. Um, So the world-class city, in other words, is uh, a kind of an aesthetic idealization, I would say, a loosely agreed-upon consensus of what the city should look like in the near future. Um, The existence of this particular type of aesthetic consensus uh, became clear to me during my fieldwork, as I heard a whole range of of people in Delhi, right, from slum dwellers to elite bungalow owners, talk about the changes taking place around them uh, and kind of concretizing or like summarizing it through the statement that Delhi is going to look like Paris, like right, Delhi Paris jaise jaise banega, without ever really defining it then talk of the world-class city was suddenly everywhere. Um, the updated Delhi master plan declared that making Delhi world-class was its primary goal. Um, that came, this master plan came out in 2007, I believe, 2006 or 2007. Um, the chief minister talked about making Delhi world-class at the beginning of every inauguration for a new infrastructure project. Um, you know, There was talk of let's build more stadiums, let's build more flyovers, now, this doesn't answer your question of how one goes about making a world class city, though. So, practically, what world class city making uh, consisted of, at least in this millennial moment in Delhi, was really the massive demolition of slums. Um, and accompanying that, a kind of aesthetic upgrading of the city's main thoroughfares and visual landscape. Um, Major infrastructure projects like the construction of dozens of new flyovers, toll roads, bridges, um, the building of the Delhi Metro Rail, 60 new shopping malls, the Commonwealth Games, Village, etc. So a lot of times when you'd ask them, what is a world class city, they wouldn't sort of define it. They would reference certain kind of built features of the landscape that they thought embodied what a world class city should be or could be. Um, Most important, though... uh, making a world-class city really kind of meant achieving what international development experts and the real estate industry had been clamoring for, for years, which is often just called land monetization. Um, What land monetization basically means is ensuring that land finds its maximum potential rent and that it's fully privatized really, Um, which obviously requires moving slums, which have low levels of uh, capitalization and are almost always on public land. Um, So in chapter one, what I try to do is I explore how a broad transformation, in the political economy of Delhi's land, you know, an effort to 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 achieve land monetization and full land capitalization was justified. Um, So since the early 2000s, what I talk about in this chapter is how since the early 2000s, key international players, most prominently the World Bank and the consulting firm McKinsey and Company have been pushing for India to move away from its more kind of socialistic past and to open up its land market. Basically they did so by claiming that if India wanted to maintain its high rate of GDP growth at the time, which was up to and above 8% growth per year, it had to make land procurement easier for private developers. Now this is what they said had to happen, but it wasn't happening for quite a while, even though, you know, economic liberalization began supposedly in India in the early nineties. But what I found, curious uh, about the justification behind accounts pushing for this really aggressive land monetization in in this millennial moment of the first decade of the 21st century um was that the claim went the justification went that india is now ready for this land privatization monetization because it has a lot of poor people right so it's the surprising spin that basically says that poverty was an asset that could be leveraged to to achieve uh, a fully world-class and developed property market. It was a strange argument that was put forward forcefully by McKinsey and Company in an influential report that I analyze in detail through a kind of visual deconstruction um, in the chapter. The report was published in 2007 and basically it shows a set of figures that depict India's future income distribution, right? So it's a kind of figure that shows... um, uh, I can't remember if it's five or six, I think five different income categories um, with highly aspirational titles like global, like the seekers, the strivers, the searchers. Um, and then there's one broad category for the urban, for the, for the poor. What the figure showed uh, basically is how there were hundreds of millions of people, poor people today, who would in the next 20 years or so entered the hallowed ranks of the middle class, that they'd be able to buy land and invest in property. And that if land wasn't privatized, so went the implication and the market wasn't ready for this explosion of the middle class, then the nation's economy would stall. So basically the argument, the visual ar- argument of these figures was, don't focus on poverty now because it's going to disappear inevitably anyway. This is um, what kind of these widely referenced figures were, were, were sort of putting forward. And what's interesting about these figures um, is that they have no real like kind of publicly scrutable statistical basis. In other words, there are no numbers presented that back them. They literally function as pictures, not as statistical charts. They tell a story of a world-class future where poverty in the present should be ignored, despite the tragic persistence of poverty as a real problem in India. So in the, in the chapter, I, I kind of argue that clearing slums to make way for luxury property development which was what was taking place at the time was depicted not just as an effective growth strategy, right. But as an inclusive mechanism of preparing the current poor, right. The poor of today for the imagined future, when they could become elite consumers ready to, to speculate on the market like everyone else. So the, what I try to do, you know, this kind of longer description of the argument is the, is to show how the whole vision of a world-class city of a world-class property market, rests on a kind of aspirational picture of a future free of poverty and not on calculative planning of the sort of the earlier developmental era, right? So this idea of the world-class city as a picture is, is really what I'm trying to kind of work with here to show how even um, the kind of hardcore political economic renderings of that future um, have a kind of, I suggest, a, a kind of aesthetic core to them, that they're, they're sort of leveraging a vision of the future more than they're speaking to particular metrics um,
1: uh,
0: or, or, or kind of, in their language, fundamentals. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: That's great. Thank you very much. I always think uh, there must be someone working at McKinsey who has a very, you know, poetic edge. Because, I mean, the, the more recent report was this urban awakening, you know, they had, like, I think, from a couple of years back with the whole of India. And again, it was in a, done in a very similar similar fashion. But uh, let's go, let's go right, to talk yeah. about yeah, Chapter chapter 2. And uh, there you look at uh, an experimental participatory, sorry, government uh, scheme. It's, 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 it's a real fascinating chapter that, that some people might know because it was one of the chapters published as an article, Gentri- um, the, oh, gentrifying the state. Sorry, So Zun, could you please tell us a little bit about this scheme and the ways in which it changes the way the state functions?
0: Yeah, of course. Um, so chapter two, uh, um, in this chapter, I describe really an ethnography that I carried out of Delhi's uh Bhagidari scheme, um, this program of participatory governance that was launched by the chief minister of Delhi in um, 2000. Um Bhagidari means participation or partnership in Hindi uh, and the idea behind the program was that by bringing local residents um, organized and were called these resident welfare associations, which are basically like you know neighborhood level homeowner groups um. Uh, by bringing them into partnership with this with main state agencies that the middle class, the middle class property owners would take an active role in contributing to Delhi's transformation into a world class city. Right. So if a street light was out, for example, they would know who to contact in the municipal corporation to ensure that it would be fixed promptly. Right. So to in, like to s- ensure smooth governance, good governance um, and local engagement with um, the making of a of a better city. These um, residents' Welfare Associations, or RWAs, as they're typically called, have historically done things like hire local security guards and hang parking signs. Um, They were not major players in urban development at all. They often were, you know, the main positions were held by uh, retired bureaucrats and uh, people not directly very involved in professional life, you might say. Under baghidari though, they would be given a direct role in making governance decisions, both at the local level and increasingly across the whole scale of the urban. What's important to recognize about Bagidari, though, and this is why uh, I have called it, as you mentioned in the question, gentrifying the state, is that it only included RWA's informally planned neighborhoods, which is about 25% of the city's population, right? The sort of wealthiest 25%, you might say. In other words, slum residents and the urban poor more generally were systematically left out of this scheme. Um, this had really important implications for how governance is organized at the local level, um, because historically the urban poor, um, who don't formally fit into city plans, have had to establish close ties with local politicians and low level bureaucrats. Um, these people who, you know, who do things like turn on water taps and connect electricity lines and identify encroachments. They've had to, the urban poor had to establish ties with these types of people to gain access to basic services and uh, protection. Right? So as scholars of the Indian state have long shown these ties between the local state and uh, the poor, have enabled the poor to kind of sidestep plans and regulations in order to access land, housing, basic services, et cetera. So this is how a popular democracy in cities and the countryside as well, in some areas, this is how it works. Um, Baghidari though had the effect of breaking or at least weakening the poor's ties to these low level state officials. Um, and it did so really by requiring that um, officials in kind of departments across different agent uh, officials in different departments across you know the municipal corporation the development authority the water board um meet with property owning resident welfare association or rwa representatives who uh and and in doing so what happened was these low-level officials attention was largely pulled in the direction of the kind of narrower civic and quality of life concerns of the middle class at the expense of um, the more immediate you might say pressing concerns of the urban poor the constituencies to which they'd historically provided various services and support so this is this is the process that i call the gentrification of the state which basically means um, that spaces of the state that had long been used by the urban poor to extract minimal protections were taken over and usurped by wealthier residents. Um, this cleared the way for the middle class aspiration to make Delhi world class city via things like slum removal, beautification, and general anti-poor measures. It made, you know, these things gave these things much more practical traction on the ground as you had local state officials that were able to get these things done and they were increasingly held accountable by their by their bosses to ensure that they were done. Um, so this was kind of a first step in world class city making and a precursor to the broader processes of aesthetic rule that i that I discuss in the remainder of the book
1: mm-hmm. wonderful. I really enjoyed the argument you making in Chapter Three because you take something you know seemingly very everyday, like the way people speak about slums, for example, you know slums are dirty, and uh, you show how they become a, a force for change in a city could you Could you please explain this for us
0: yeah, this is an interesting phenomenon. Um, when I started following the court orders and the justifications that were given for slum removal, I found that these basic statements about the nuisance of slums kept coming up. Right? So in other words, declarations, as you say, that a slum was filthy or dirty or smelled bad, um, seemed to be the primary basis on which the judiciary and state officials recognized the demands of property owners who were trying to have neighboring slums kicked out. Right. So I wanted to figure out how these statements in the chapter I call nuisance talk worked at the neighborhood level in everyday life, really. So I started to attend the meetings of the resident welfare associations uh, in which these discussions about slums took place and to track how they talked about slums and how these types of utterances, that slum stinks, or this slum is such an annoyance, contributed to a kind of broader urban aesthetic or a broader notion of how the city should appear. And what struck me about this was how highly localized and subjective depictions of slums as uncivil or dirty or ugly began to travel into and really gain, uh, gain, um, gain legitimacy in popular representations of the city and like kind of state visions of urban space. These same kinds of depictions started or increasingly started to crop up, um, this took place on the basis of a set of features of, of, of nuisance, really the category nuisance, which is a really interesting uh, category, both legally and and just as far as uh, uh, a lay category. So, as a kind of lay category, nuisance um, is widely used to identify forms of kind of aesthetic impropriety, right? Something that's annoying or disgusting to one's local sense of uh, of space um, through. Its circulation across different settings, though, the same types of utterances, nuisance, I found, began to tie together the, a kind of larger geographical imaginary of the city and what was out of place in it. Um, it did so by allowing speakers and audiences in different settings, so right, a, a kind of RWA in South Delhi and an RWA in East Delhi, to understand and talk about the kind of disgust of that slum over there. Right. Some other slum never seen. Right. You can understand it without ever having to see it or smell it. Right. So I know the stink and the problem of that slum, your slum, because I have smelled this slum, my slum near me. Um, So it kind of provides this linking, bridging language. Um, In the context of a broader citywide conversation about the problem of, of, of the slum as a cat, as a spatial category, um, and facilitated by the Pagidari scheme about which I just spoke um, that really empowered property owners, This nuisance talk, these types of utterances kind of began to establish um, uh, uh, a kind of broader sense of of the unbelonging of the slum that radiated across the whole city, or it it began to spread across the city more widely. Now, nuisance, interestingly, also provides the underpinning for environmental law in India. Um, And with the increase in nuisance talk... The very same language about the nuisance of slums uttered in these localized private settings and neighborhood settings started to filter into official state visions and into a flood of really a a flood of petitions, a massive increase in private petitions filed through public interest litigation by property owners put to the judiciary targeting slums for removal. So that very same language, localized language of disgust gained a kind of official platform. It found a voice. It was translated into the space of the judiciary and other state platforms. And when it found its way into the judiciary, it allowed for the identification of a kind of citywide community of property owners claiming that slum nuisance denied them their use and enjoyment of land, which is the kind of definition of nuisance, the legal definition of nuisance. And so this led to a transformation of how nuisance petitions were ultimately handled in the court. Um, And it gave these like, these seemingly descriptive statements of slum filth, uh, just these everyday utterances that you mentioned, um, uh, uh, a powerful, even legal effect, uh, one that contributed to the consolidation of an urban vision in which slums, I argue, had no part.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. And and that conversation, well, not wonderful that that it happened, but it's wonderful that you you finished on that point it, it takes us into this discussion about the judiciary more directly because aesthetics also informed their actions as well. Right.
0: Mm. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that, that, right. So this, the, the argument, uh, moving into, I, I have a, a whole chapter that's really a, a careful analysis of the, the, the uh, transformation of the function of nuisance law. Um, uh, so, to continue this kind of story of nuisance uh, so the, the the chapter three on nuisance talk is about the circulating discourse and its powerful effects in the following chapters on the way in which those uh, that language gets transformed into having real kind of um, juridical power um, and potency um, when when applied in the courts um, so, in law, nuisance is defined basically as as an injury or an annoyance or an offense um, to the sense of sight or smell. Um, It's an essentially aesthetic category, therefore, right? So in in post-independence India, uh, general slum-related nuisances uh, were legally considered the responsibility of the local government. Mm -hmm. Um, Slums were dirty because the state didn't provide them with basic infrastructure. This was the position of the judiciary. Mm -hmm. Um, and the reason for that was because nuisances were legally defined only as objects possessed or actions performed. Mm -hmm. So if the problem at hand, for example, was rubbish in a canal, right? Somebody was worried about a canal getting, getting all littered up, for example, then, um, the nuisance was legally categorized either as the rubbish itself, right? So the, the rubbish sitting in the canal, obstructing things, making things smell or the act of throwing the rubbish into the canal. In the early two thousands, though, the Indian judiciary, um, in the Delhi context, redefined the category of nuisance such that the appearance of filth, right, in and of itself, became a, a basis for demolishing slums. And this took place by uh, by defining nuisances not only as objects or actions, right, the rubbish sitting in the canal or the act of throwing it, but also as entire population groups. Thus, while um, complaints about the filth and stench of slums over the previous 50 years could only be addressed legally by building toilets and improving drainage in slums, right? This is the kind of type of order that ju- the judiciary issued towards municipal bodies when nuisance charges were, were le- um, uh, leveled against them. What, what happened then increasingly was that the, the reinterpretation of nuisance allowed slum-based nuisances to be addressed through slum removal, um, And as a result of this shift, the courts started to consider photographs, interestingly, showing a slum's dirty look and poor environmental conditions to be sufficient evidence to issue a demolition order. Um, This reinterpretation of nuisance law contributed then to what I argue is a new aesthetic ordering of the city in which uh, the legality of space could be determined entirely from a distance and without requiring um, those kind of calculative measures of survey and, and mapping anymore. In the chapter, I pieced this together by reviewing court cases that led to slum demolition orders from about 1980 to 2010, um, and also by attending court hearings that were dealing with uh, slum-based nuisances. And I found here, uh, resonant with the argument I just made and that's made in the previous chapter three, I found that the very same nuisance talk that was first uttered in neighborhoods to describe the aesthetic impropriety of slums and that was then translated into legal petitions by property owners that were seeking to have slums removed, then found its way into the actual orders themselves that were issued by the judges. So the vast majority of arguments given by judges to remove slums were then on nuisance grounds. In some instances, even petitioners complaining about nuisance weren't even requesting that a slum be removed, but in those cases, a judge would simply notice, in some instances, a photograph that showed the presence of a slum, right? Somebody's complaining because the canal next to their, next to their neighborhood is, it smells bad. They submit photographs showing the canal to demonstrate the location and the area and what it looks like. In the photo, it's revealed that a slum is there, and the judge notices this and issues a demolition notice, right, without the complaint even being about the slum as such. This then, to me, confirmed the extent to which aesthetic judgment had been kind of solidified as a primary mechanism of slum demolition in this millennial moment. And I think it also shows the extent to which a kind of world-class aesthetic had been been built that cast slums as self-evidently out of place in in this moment.
1: (laughs) I mean, we've spoken so far, you know, mostly about the, the middle classes and the judiciary and so on, but do you mentioned that you did a lot of ethnographic research also in the slums themselves and amongst slum residents Do, do these groups, that these people, they also buy into this world-class aesthetic or not?
0: Yeah, that's uh, a great question. Um, so to explore, yeah. So the, the, um, so the, the, Methodologically, the project consists really of kind of two years of ethnographic field work in delhi and the, and one of those years was an ethnography of a single su- a single slum um, that I call Shiv camp that 's a pseudonym um, to, so to try to understand how slum residents responded to this kind of world class aesthetic and the massive increase in demolitions that it precipitated. I went and tried to find, a, a, a. it wasn't very hard to find one, but to try to find a, a settlement that was threatened by demolition or was in the course of kind of demolition proceedings. Um, so during my work in the, this place, Shiv Camp, uh, in West Delhi, there were multiple cases filed by neighboring property owners um, against it. They were, these cases were all pending. And on two occasions, a portion of the huts there were raised by state bulldozers. So I was able to witness kind of the way that people responded to kind of ultimate consequences of these, these demolition orders in this broader world-class aesthetic that said slums have no part. Um, what I did during that year was I followed residents' daily struggles to stay put. Um, I sat through their organizational meetings, attended court hearings with them, met with their lawyers, and observed, really, their daily engagement with the city around them. Uh, in the year before I had arrived in shift camp, so I arrived in uh, 2007, Two slums nearby had been demolished. Um, and talk of this idea of a kind of slum-free city was really everywhere. The hype of transforming Delhi was at its peak at this moment. Um, the Delhi metro rail had just arrived in the area. It was less than a kilometer away. Uh, there was a five-star hotel being built right adjacent to the main metro station. There was a shopping mall coming up in the same vicinity. And interestingly, a lot of the, the kind of middle-class property owners nearby, right adjacent to the slum, it started to do this kind of exterior facade work to make their homes kind of look posher, you know, putting in like fake uh, uh, columns and using a lot of marble and that type of thing. Um, So shift camp really in this emerging world-class landscape, if you will, stood out like a sore thumb. Um, This, this, shifting kind of landscape of uh, the shifting kind of aesthetic landscape um, combined with preliminary orders against Shiv Camp pointing out its irregular appearance made demolition for most Shiv Camp residents seem like it was going to happen, like it seemed like an inevitability. Unsurprisingly, then, residents very well understood the terms of the world class aesthetic, even though they obviously didn't talk about it like that. They knew what the city's rulers wanted the city to look like, and they very well understood that slums had no role in that vision. Right? They'd sometimes talk about this hypothetical map. They'd say, yeah, the state has a map, and it shows what the city's going to look like in 10 years. And there, you know, there was no such map, but it was the sort of imagination of this, this really well-defined uh, uh, picture of the future, and they knew that that was a picture in which they had no part. So more surprisingly, though, than this recognition of what the world-class aesthetic was, was for me that residents often used the very same nuisance talk that that property owners had used to describe slums as ugly and out of place. Right. So on first glance, then, it appeared that residents kind of did indeed buy into the world-class aesthetic. But when I followed their struggles more fully and spent more time um, working with them and, you know, hearing stories and watching their struggles, I found that there was something a little bit more complex at work. Um, To understand this, I think it might be useful to go back just a little bit. Uh, At the beginning of our conversation, Ian, I mentioned how Delhi experienced what I call the calculative crisis. Um, This was the late 90s, uh, and it eventually precipitated the shift from a system of rule-by-records, you know, simply put, a rule-by-records to Mm rule-by-aesthetics. This wasn't a shift that took place, within the state, within the state alone. It wasn't just like the state kind of was inefficient. And so they had to do this shift. Slum dwellers were at, Instead, I, I try to show how slum dwellers were very active in generating and contributing to that shift. They were, they were central to the, calcul- the calculative crisis. And the way that this worked is that they increasingly implicated themselves, right? Lodged themselves into the documentary documentary, um, uh, circuits of the state uh, as it were they um, like so when state officials came to survey a slum or enumerate households slum residents and the activists who supported them contested state representations trying to show how state knowledge was incomplete and partial in all kinds of ways they do things like show state records that they'd collected they would do their own surveys of the settlement that showed that the government numbers were off they'd issue their ID cards mobilize voter lists basically to demonstrate how they had long been recognized by the state in their current positions and to challenge state claims that slums had somehow encroached illegally on land surreptitiously, you know, in the shadows of the night, this type of thing. They tried to show how settlement histories were also state histories and the state had a direct role in this and couldn't just wash its hands of with slums without sort of proper compensation, etc. So this slowed down, The apparatus of calculative governmentality it made slum demolition very very difficult by the turn of the 21st century well in millennial delhi with a shift to aesthetic rule the ability of slum dwellers to use those same documentary those same documents for claims making had collapsed right the courts no longer recognized these claims and uh that kind of inevitability of a slum street a, a, a slum free city had really set in um And forcing slum residents to kind of have to search for an alternative basis to make a claim for the right to the city. What I found is that they did so, interestingly, by appropriating and using the language of the world class aesthetic itself, right? Taking it up as their own and kind of what I argue was a a practice of cultivating the capacity to imagine a world class future in which they had a central part. Right. So for so long, the world-class city was cast as a slum-free space where slum dwellers would sort of be removed. They maintained the vision of this beautiful, purified, sanitized space, but it was one in which they also had a position. And so that open question of what that position was, was a kind of possibility of claims making. So how did this happen? Um, in brief, I found that slum dwellers' statements of filthy slums, which reiterated again the very terms of nuisance that property owners used to target slums, that this, uh, this, this practice often granted slum dwellers positional advantages um, vis-a-vis their neighbors and the judiciary, right? So by accepting the terms of the world-class aesthetic, accepting that slums indeed were sort of discordant with this vision, slum dwellers emerged kind of as subjects of its discourse. They were speaking on its terms and could both claim a seat at the table and participate, I suggest, in the collective imagination of what a world-class city should look like, right? Nobody really knew what a world-class city should look like, and so slum dwellers tried to take part in that. They tried to offer a vision of their own. They suggested that if a city was to be world-class, then its residents should also be provided with world-class services. They shouldn't just be banished to the peripheries where most of the resettlement colonies were located. So in making this argument, um, I'm trying to kind of counter common depictions of slum dwellers and other communities of the dispossessed as kind of passive dupes of the state. Those who are sort of resigned to their fates. This is an especially common characterization, of course, of Dalits and other low caste Hindus who are often presumed to, um, subscribe to, a, a kind of theory of kar- a deterministic theory of kar- karma that says, you know, you can't get what you deserve. Um, this is very c- prominent in activist circles, but it's also, of course, endured within the sort of record of how low caste Hindus and Dalits have been, have been talked about. Shiv camp um, uh, was almost entirely Dalit. And what I try to show is how a form of subaltern kind of aesthetic politics emerged that allowed these residents cast out of the city and outcasts of the city to appropriate and reuse the terms of the world-class city in such a way that the city could increasingly be imagined only with them in it, right? So this, I argue, both in Chapter 5 and in the conclusion of the book, contributed ultimately to a crisis of aesthetic rules, right? If there was a crisis of, of, of calculative rule at the turn of the 21st century, then towards the end of the first decade of the 21st century, around 2010, um, for a variety of reasons, there was a collapse or a crisis of aesthetic rule, which ultimately led to a kind of collapse of the Delhi-based Congress Party and the rise of this new upstart Am Agni Party, the Common Man Party, which really placed the slum dweller, right, the Jughi Vasi, at the core of its vision of a world-class city. And so I try to show how... In this chapter, tracking a variety of performances in the courtroom, in people's homes, in engagements with state officials and politicians, how their strategic use of this language of a world class city made it such that political the political establishment sort of kind of retained the vision of a world class city, but had to reinterpret its its kind of content such that the poor itself
1: had a central place in it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Let's now talk then about the the final full chapter of the book and uh, my question about this chapter is about it's about those who've been resettled so how do those who are resettled from slums how do they imagine the future of the city
0: yeah um practically what all this business you know it's kind of my long-winded description of the business of imagining the future of delhi for its slum dwellers what it practically kind of means you're right has a lot to do with resettlement um Not all of those displaced from slums receive resettlement housing. In fact, very few do. Uh, But in the context of Delhi's millennial demolition drive, resettlement seemed to be the only option really available to those uh, threatened by demolition, threatened by, you know, in the path of the bulldozer. Um, Mm -hmm. Now, Delhi's resettlement colonies, especially those where people were being relocated during my field work in 2007 and 2008, are not nice places, right? we know this but they're far they're far away they have poor employment uh, prospects there's often really bad security there slums are far more integrated in the city with better work options schools etc but while these resettlement colonies have far fewer amenities they do come with a major advantage and that advantage is state recognition or something sometimes that we could almost think of as something like property recognition. At least this is how the state talks about resettlement when it depicts resettlement to slum dwellers. It says, this will be your land, right? This will be yours. You can register it, this type of thing. Um, so slum dwellers do imagine resettlement plots as property. And that's an important uh, an important uh, dimension of this whole process. In millennial Delhi, right, with nuisance law, increasingly casting the slum slums is out of place and increasingly depicting property ownership itself as a condition of citizenship. this is something I argue in the law chapter. Property ownership was increasingly a condition of citizenship. There was an implicit link that was made between property and propriety to own property was to have propriety to own property was to be a proper citizen of the city to own property was to count and nuisance law functions largely on these terms. People were aggrieved and could demand removals of slums from public land on the basis of being property owners, of having a private nuisance, uh, of experiencing a nuisance to the, their use and enjoyment of land. So unsurprisingly, slum residents recognized this. They recognized the importance of property, both on material terms and for its symbolic rewards. But they didn't just want these kind of peripheral underserviced plots, what was being offered by the state. Um, they wanted proper housing, right? They wanted housing that would make them proper citizens, citizens of a transformed world-class city. Um, I therefore found that residents talked about an imagined resettlement often on highly aspirational terms, right? They expected, or they at least talked about it as if all the benefits of property would begin to flow to them once they received resettlement. These peripheral, poorly serviced, far away, not very nice plots. So people would say things like, if we get resettlement, our husbands will stop drinking. And they'll find better work. Right? My, our daughters will marry good boys. We'll become wealthy. Maybe we'll even own a car. These types of really, really uh, grandiose gestures. Um, uh, this was the middle class dream, in other words, and they were very much using it. Um, and it was literally I found plastered on their walls uh, in um, – In these chapters, in in, in one section, I talk about their use of what are called house posters. These are basically these cartoon-like renderings of mostly single-family homes, often in these really ridiculous, fantastical suburban settings. And residents of of ship camp use these posters sometimes to imagine a world-class future for themselves, to give themselves really, I think, the license to dream and to describe a a world-class future this expectation of propriety, right, a life of propriety, of living properly in a private home, translated into their conversations with state leaders, importantly. And it did so as they refused to accept that resettlement could consist of anything less than this vision, right? If they were going to give up their homes, if they were going to make all these sacrifices of being evicted from the city that they'd called home for decades, then they too should be made world-class. This was increasingly their demand, right? And in making it, they transformed the world-class city. I argue they began the process of transforming the world-class city from a dream, really, into a demand—a demand for full services, a demand for economic inclusion and security, a demand for property ownership. So, in other words, they they kind of turned they turned the sort of the promises uh, of the city into uh, their own kind of conditions of, of citizenship and the basis of their own types of claims making. And this is something I'm beginning to think about. little bit more now, but it's the way in which the current Am party, the current party uh, ruling the state government in Delhi, um, has has in some ways sort of taken up aspects of this vision. Despite the collapse of many aspects of the world-class city-making project in Delhi after the corruption scandals of the Commonwealth Games and other types of urban corruption issues in India more widely there was a kind of turn away from this idea of a world-class city. But what's been interesting, I think, is that the urban poor have retained it. And they've said, we've given up so much, we aren't letting go of this vision. It's it's, it's ours now, and we're going to claim it and 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 make sure that it's enacted in a way that's beneficial for us.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Um, thank you so much for this uh, discussion about your book. I, I really enjoyed reading it. I hope people have enjoyed our conversation and, and check out... Um, The book for themselves there's a lot there for people not only who are interested in south asian studies but urban studies but also questions of of citizenship and how you know government government mechanisms and so on so i hope a lot of people do check that out you just hinted about your sort of new research interests and now traditional last question across all of the new books network is to ask you what's Mm -hmm. your what are your current and future projects that you're working on now
0: yeah, uh, well, thanks again, Ian, for having me. It's been uh, it's been nice to uh, have the opportunity to discuss the book in this longer format. One doesn't often get those opportunities. Um, um, the the currently, I have. A, a number of projects ongoing, but two that are still Delhi focus, um, focus on uh, that, look at, uh, the space of unauthorized colonies on the one hand and the, the atmosphere on the other. So one is sort of, uh, in the same kind of peripheral land areas of the city and the other is up in the air as it were. So mm-hmm. the first project, um, is looking at kind of the politics of of planning around unauthorized development. These unauthorized colonies house about a third of Delhi's overall population. And I think the numbers are similar across most of India's larger metro cities. Um, They're like slums uh, in that they often violate planning code, planning rules, but the unlike slums, the residents actually own the land that they occupy. It's often converted agricultural land beyond the urbanized limits of the city. There's a whole interesting set of infrastructural politics going on out there. Um, uh, um, and so I've been doing some uh, off and on field work when I, when I do my kind of annual visit to Delhi, um, visiting these settlements and exploring um, uh, the ways in which uh, planning rules are kind of twisted uh, to facilitate different uh, development outcomes there and some of the ways that infrastructure in particular gets mobilized um, towards political ends. So kind of infrastructure as a tool of politics. So that's, that's the first, it's, and it kind of directly builds on the work on slums. What was very interesting is there have been very little written about these unauthorized colonies, even though they're such a, a huge part of the city as a whole. The second project is on kind of bad air, right? So we all now know that, that according to the WHO, Delhi has reportedly the worst air in the world. It's the dirtiest, most air polluted city in the world. And so I'm doing kind of a cultural politics of breathing in India's huh. capital city um, I found it very interesting that when President Obama visited in uh, 2014 the greatest security threat that he faced wasn't from, you know, international terrorism or whatever, but it was actually the city's atmosphere itself, right? So the embassy installs like 16 or 1800 high level air filtration systems um <laughs> the to to try to, you know, because Obama was apparently losing two weeks of his life or something by spending 4 days in the city. Um and then the, you know, the US The embassy did it. The U S school did it. The German school did it. And so, um, if the first, if the, if the first project, the rule by aesthetics project was really on the kind of conditions under which a, a, a residentially segregated city was constructed, then, uh, this project is kind of thinking about the potential and possibility and the limits of producing a segregated atmosphere, right? The extent to which the elite can actually sequester themselves from the atmosphere itself. And, um, So putting in energy intensive air filtration systems and air conditioners that have to be run by diesel generators that billow diesel into the back lanes where normal people then have to breathe even dirtier air produces a similar type of environmental justice contradiction that we might expect but there's also kinds all kinds of ways that cross cross class solidarity solidarities are formed um for example around the issues of the odd even bus scheme around trying i mean sorry odd even car scheme to try to get dirty vehicles off the road to reduce the road usage um and 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 so this is a project that i'm just beginning but um it's, it's, it's exciting because it's kind of contradictions and returning a little bit to older questions of the environment, um, which is where I kind of began my,
1: my uh, academic career. Well, that sounds absolutely fascinating, both of those projects. We look forward to reading those when they come out. So uh, thanks again, Asher, for coming on the podcast and for this chance to talk about your wonderful book. Thanks again, Ian. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for downloading the New Books in Salvation Asian Studies podcast. I've been your host, Ian Cook, and today we've been talking about Rule by Aesthetics by Asher Gerner. I really hope you've enjoyed the conversation as much as I have, and I hope you download again next time. Ta-ra.